me and the singers would spin out of sight as the band kept playing and then the band would stop and we were still singing and then the audience would sing the the final choruses together and it was just like a great punctuation mark it was a nice way to to kind of come down um because you you know you don't want to edge people like to death like <laughs> like you gotta you know there's a place for that in this in the set but like you gotta bring them down and, and kind of send them off on their way with like a full heart and like joy edging to death at a concert isn't the worst way to go <laughs> <like>. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to a very special Grammys edition, The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside all of the intrigue, the insight, the drama of the 2022 ceremony. My name is Alex Suskind. I'm the music editor for EW, and I'm joined today by EW critic at large and resident Megan the Stallion thought shit expert, Leah Greenblatt. <laughs> oh, my Megan PhD. Thank you for accrediting me. Anytime, anytime. Um, how are you doing today? I'm good, but I'm mad at the Grammys. They're, they've disappointed me this year. Who isn't mad at the Grammys, I think, is the question. This is our first Grammys Awards episode of the season, and we have a great show for you today. We're going to be chatting with Grammy nominee St. Vincent, but before we get there, yes, let's start at the top. The year's kind of big nominees. Um, the 2022 crop is led by, um, in a very on-brand Grammy move, I'd say, uh, jazz musician and late show band leader John Batiste who snagged 11 nominations, including Record of the Year and Album of the Year for his record, We Are, which is a very good album, I would like to add. Um, that's followed up by Justin Bieber, Doja Cat, and Grammy-anointed Next Big Thing, Her. That's H-E-R. And they all have eight apiece. And then that's followed up by our next-gen superstars, Billie Eilish and Olivia Rodrigo at seven. So, Leah, what do you see kind of big picture when you look across these Big four categories this year. I see too big of a picture in that there are too many nominees, I think. But I think because we work in entertainment and people say to us all the time, like, how did you survive the last, what, 20 months? You know, the dearth of entertainment. And I keep thinking so many good things came out in film and in books and in music. We've had some pretty great albums the last year and a half plus, and a lot of them are on here. And that makes me really happy. There are good records, great records on this list. But I just feel like the Grammys have been scrambling to sort of, you know, they're not in the crisis that the Golden Globes is in. I don't think anybody is. <laughs> but they're trying to find their place again in culture. And they were at the pinnacle of it for so long. And I think they want to speak to several different audiences, you know, and in some ways the medium is the message. This is a TV show, right? The kids are not going to network television on a Sunday night to watch word shows necessarily or to watch their favorite artists or maybe they are and so like they're trying to triangulate a lot i think with this year's nominees and be everything to everybody but how do you think that's working out for them well it's interesting i think the grammys are kind of having an identity crisis like every other major award show now, this is nothing new in the age of social media all of these award shows have had decreased ratings and just sort of general decreased interest from the artists themselves, I'd say. That's crucial. Yeah. Which is crucial, which is crucial. I'd say they're making some pretty Grammy-esque mistakes um, that they've been known <laughs> to do in the past. It's an, it's an adjective and an adverb. It really is. You know, 
it's really nice to see big tent pop albums that are really good, like Billy's Happier Than Ever and Olivia's Sour get the nominations they deserve. Doja Cat as well, Planet Her, great record. I would say in Grammy's yes. past, that might not have been the type of album that would have gotten recognition. They've never been a rap favorite award ceremony, and I'd argue that they still aren't, but it is nice to see her at the top of the pile. Justin Bieber, uh, well, I wasn't a fan of Justice, but I know a lot of people I were. I enjoyed that record. You enjoyed it? Okay. I like Peaches you for made, what you, it's worth. Well, you made me review it. That's your fault. So I, had, I got Stockholm Syndrome into it. But, <laughs> that is yeah, true. It's, it's not a great record. I want to see some singles do well from that record, but I, I don't need to see it win anything as an album. Me too. I'm right there with you. And I can't imagine it will. At least I assume it won't. The Grammys have pulled off some weirder surprises in the past. It's a courtesy nod. I think we know, but that's okay. It is a courtesy nod. Outside of that, there are some fairly inspired and I'd even say some progressive choices from the Grammys this year, particularly if you look in the best new artist category. Aruja Aftab is someone who I would have never expected to get the nod. Then again, you also have Japanese Breakfast and Best New Artist, who is someone that we love here at EW. Her album Jubilee is terrific. It was on our top 10 list of the year. However, it's her third album, I believe. So Freaking again, Glass Animals. I think that's their fourth glass album. Glass Animals. Exactly. So the Grammys are going to Grammy. They're going to choose new artists, quote unquote, <laughs> who aren't actually new. But it's nice to see some, again, more progressive nominees kind of sneaking in. So it feels like the Grammys are hedging a little bit toward broader sounds and musicians while still kind of keeping their feet firmly planted in the old head crammy way of thinking. The gray ponytail. Yes. Exactly. That we did that way. I think that we've, you know, which is not to say that when, you know, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss or Herbie Hancock, when they win record of the year, Oh God, what was the, wasn't there a Steely Dan year or two? But there was, was a like Steely Dan year. I do want to say, I appreciate some of the pivots that they've had. And I know I keep coming back to this, but I just think there's a little bit of a forfeiture when you say we have 10 nominees for something that starts to feel like such an everybody in the pool thing that it's almost like it's a participation trophy to be nominated, you know, and then you can pat yourselves on the back for being progressive because you had 10 spots to give away. But that doesn't make me not happy for Aruj Aftab that she can slap Grammy nominated best new artist on anything she does going forward. That's rad. But it just seems a little like the self-congratulation of the Grammys is maybe a little misplaced in that respect of saying, but look, we've changed. They've just expanded, kind of. Absolutely. And for those who are not in the know, we should note that the top four categories, which are album of the year, record of the year, song of the year, and best new artists, expanded from eight to 10 artists this year, which was a surprise because it happened very last minute, as in a couple of days before the Grammy nominations themselves were announced. <laughs> now, that did allow for someone like Arouche to get into Best New Artist, as well as Baby Keem. It also included uh, an ABBA nomination, their first Grammy nomination, believe it or not. But it also featured a Taylor Swift album nomination and a Kanye West album nomination. And it happened very quickly. It seemed, according to a recent Billboard report, that Harvey Mason Jr., the Academy president, kind of decided, I'd say, on a whim to just expand the categories a few days before everything was announced, which seems like a very inspired and, frankly, kind of shocking choice. I don't believe that story for what it's worth. I don't think anyone, <laughs> anyone makes that kind of pivot in a corporation that quickly. But you know what? If it serves the show and if it serves the artist, 
I think a lot of the issues in the last few years too have been who they've chosen for performers, right? I remember when Lord was the only female nominee and the only one not invited to perform on the show, even though she was up for album of the year. I think she was invited to be part of a tribute. You know, and I remember when they shut Ariana Grande out when she had like the top two albums in the country and they were like, no, we don't need you for the show. We have like some kind of Skinnered all-star jam or something planned. So <laughs> I think that's just such a huge component because my childhood, you know, and my, my, my young adulthood, whatever, is just filled with memories of really iconic performances from the VMAs and the Grammys that I think don't quite happen in the same way anymore, right? Those sort of monoculture moments. So you really have to sort of, it's a high bar to sort of impact people beyond, you know, the next six to 12 hours of social media. Mm -hmm. And particularly if you're trying to attract younger listeners, you would expect them to maybe extend an invite to someone like Ariana or Lord. And I'm not sure which one of those years it was, but I think you two performed twice, like in one of those years, and they didn't invite Lord, which again, very on brand Cramp's decision to do that in the first place, but very odd decision overall. Look, there, yeah, I love so many of the names on here, but it is interesting too that some things feel like repeat of the last. A uh, year or two, in a way, it feels a little Groundhog Day to see Brandy Carlisle and her, and you know certain names that we've kind of seen over and over. Really talented artists, but also a little, you know, how Machine Gun Kelly told Megan Fox, "I am weed." I feel like her can <laughs> yes. just walk around being like, "I am Grammys." <laughs> like this is an artist who, who to me is almost defined by being a Grammys artist at this point, because that's where she tends to get, you know, so many nominations. And I don't know, I'm just not sure that it reflects what people are really like listening to. And it's interesting to see artists like Drake and The Weeknd say, I would like to be excused from this narrative, you know? It really is. And obviously two slightly different situations there. The Weeknd whose excellent and record-breaking album After Hours was completely shot out of Grammys last year. That was bananas. Which is still an absolutely nutty decision. He's decided not to submit any of his music moving forward. Of course, the fun part of that is he is technically nominated for a Grammy this year because he is a co-writer on Kanye's Donda. So he ended up sneaking in inevitably with a nomination. But any of his top-line music will no longer be part of the Grammys. And you mentioned Drake, who actually did get nominated with Best Rap Performance and Best Rap Album this year. However, he decided to be like, you know what, I'm good and withdraw those nominations, which suspiciously felt like hmm, I didn't get the Album of the Year nomination and these are too small for me. So I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> I don't want your goodie bag Grammys. Do you think it matters that these like big artists are snubbing the Grammys? I think it does. And I think it's interesting that the Grammys Every year they love to tout, you know, Jay-Z still our most nominated. I think actually he finally surpasses Quincy Jones this he year. Did this or year. last year he did. Mm -hmm. um, oh, it was this year. Okay. Yeah. So look, you and I have talked a lot about, remember um, when Tyler, the creator, won Best Rap Album a couple of years ago when he just said, it would mm -hmm. be really great if I wasn't always put in the quote unquote urban category. You mm -hmm. know, I think that... They have to know that when they lose these stars, these these top line stars, when they reject the Grammys, that they, that something needs to change. And I'm not sure that they we're seeing the change they want to see. I do wonder if has anyone asked Drake, for example, straight out, what would make you come to the Grammys again? 
Well, I'm not sure many people have Drake's number and he doesn't seem to be talking to the press at all these days. So I think the, even in that billboard report I cited earlier, it sounded like the, the recording academy reached out, but w- they weren't able to get Drake on the phone. They only talked to his manager and label about the withdrawal. So it's a good question. I mean, he did have kind of surprise cameo a few years ago at the Grammys. I'm not remembering which uh, award he came out for. I think he came out to accept Best Rap Album, which was a huge shock because no one knew he was there in the first place. At least no one in the public knew he was there in the first place. And he had a very interesting speech where he noted that basically this award that I'm accepting right now doesn't matter. We are in an opinion-based sport. And yeah, basically, I don't care about the Grammys. I should also note that that speech ended up getting cut off. I was in the room and they cut the mic. So (laughs) clearly, there's already like some bad blood between Drake and the Grammys. And I, after he commented on the lack of nominations for his Toronto buddy the weekend last year, it's a good question. I'm not sure there is much he would do. Maybe it is an album of the year nomination. Maybe. Drake wants to start his own award show, OVO Presents. I don't know. But it is definitely a big deal when someone of his caliber decides that, again, no, I'm good. I don't need a Grammy nomination. I don't care. I can do my own thing and have a billion streams on my next record, and it doesn't matter. You know, I was thinking as we were talking, and I'm still more interested in the Grammys than I am in the VMAs. I think the VMAs, the Rubicon, is in the rearview mirror, I would say. Right. And that was a huge cultural touchstone for years and years. Right. I mean, Britney with a snake, like Miley with the tongue. There's, you know, I'm just thinking of who, fe- who fell off the rafter. Was that the oh, guy from Rage Against the Machine? From Rage Against the Machine, who I'm blanking <laughs> yeah. on, which was just an amazing moment in television history. <laughs> you know, I, I, what was there? There was a fight between Kid Rock and Tommy Lee. I mean, look, they used yes. to give us so much gold. It was amazing. And, and I think in many ways, the VMAs were the Golden Globes to the Grammys, right? They were like the drunk, fun <laughs> uncle. Yes. And, you know, we've lost some of those parallels. And, I, you know, it was it was really interesting to watch the ceremony last year and that sort of like, Rooftop parking lot? Where were we? At the Staples Center? It was somewhere outside the Staples Center. It was like alfresco, but not sort of. (laughs) And, you know, it was so muted. And you realize how much of this is the pageantry, right? Like, of course, you know, we love when some of our favorite indie artists get these awards, but they only ever televise nine of them, right? So we hear about it at 11 a.m. the day of the Grammys. You hear, oh, great, you know, you know, this record that I love won, and that's St. Vincent won, or, or whoever it is. And, but you never get to see them on TV. And I sort of feel like, you know, this is getting a little if a tree falls in the woods, right? If you don't have those huge cultural moments on the show, does anyone care so much that you won besides, you know, your friends and family sort of in your fandom? So the question I think the Grammys are asking themselves, I'd say the highlight of last year, at least the moment that was kind of talked about was the fact that Beyonce actually graced the Grammys with her presence. (laughs) It's like, oh, Beyonce, you know, yes, exactly. Uh, Yes, she actually showed up. And outside of that, I mean, there wasn't that much more talked about other than the Billie Eilish trying to basically pass off her award over to Megan Thee Stallion. And that's not a She tried to regift the, it like a Christmas she candle. She literally tried to regift it. She she pulled it or tried to pull an Adele. Um, and <laughs> I, though I feel like I should say I, I'm being dismissive. Uh, like if a tree falls in a woods, it, it's a huge life. It's a huge achievement still to win a Grammy, and I don't want to take that away from anybody. I just sure. sometimes when you when you look at 
you know, all the asterisks that come that come with it. Like we were saying with Jay-Z, you know, they can blast it out there that he has the most awards, the most denominations, but we know that he didn't get album of the year when he deserved it more than once. So those are the kind of historical corrections. But then, you know, we also know like Leonardo probably didn't need to win the Oscar for, you know, he should have won it for The Departed. He did not. That's fine. They got back to him a few years later. He had to eat bison liver first, you know, I get it. He had to freeze in a river. So (laughs) I don't know. I just, it does feel a little crucial though this year. Like I saw someone tweeted the other day. They said, I'm not making any New Year's resolutions. 2022 has to basically, has to come meet me where I'm at. And I'm like, (laughs) you know what, Grammys, come meet us. Like show us why you deserve to go on. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And it's funny, and here's my segue into our St. Vincent conversation, which is coming up shortly. I spoke with Annie Clark of St. Vincent about the sort of general tension between art and a massive institution like the Recording Academy. You know, St. Vincent has won two Grammys in the past. She won for Best Alternative Album in 2015 for her excellent self-titled record and Best Rock Song in 2019 for Mass Seduction. She was the first person to win since Sinead. The first woman to win Best Alternative since Sinead O'Connor won it in 1990, I think, or 91. A 24-year absence of women at the top of the Best Alternative album category. And, you know, I asked her what her thoughts were on winning a Grammy in 2021, or I guess it would be 2022 next year. You know, if she were to win again, have her opinions changed on the Grammys themselves? Does she care? Particularly for someone who still sort of subscribes to that rock star mystique. One of the few artists who still do in this kind of era of ultra relatability. (laughs) Does she actually care about this stuff? And she sounded genuine and earnest and was like, you know what? I actually do because it is being voted on by my peers, by a body of artists who maybe I don't play the same music as them. Maybe they're much older than me. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it means so much to me that people who are in this industry and recognize what music is and work in all of these technicalities that I do enjoyed the music that I made and put my heart in. It's not like the AMAs. It's not a fan voted award show. It's almost like the SAGs in a way, you know, when actors get up and talk about how honor they are to be voted on by their peers. For her, it's the same thing with the Grammys and the Recording Academy to get a nomination. And she seemed genuinely honored by it, particularly for this album, which is a little bit more personal than some of her previous records, or I'd say more public facing for her own private life. You know what? I feel chastened now. You have, I I stand corrected. I think of St. Vincent as well as like, to me, she's such a technically, I mean, I, I love the last record, Daddy's Home. I think that's a great record. It's this great sort of sleazy 70s, like Lower East Side sort of old New York that I know that she loves. And I feel like it's her fan letter to some of that stuff, this almost like prog glam rock kind of thing. But also she's so technically proficient. And I think that her peers do kind of get that she's, she's, one of the best rock musicians, I think, and one of the most interesting. And again, she's going in the studio with Jack Antonoff, which is maybe not what you think of as the person who's working with, you know, Lana Del Rey and Taylor and Annie Clark. But they went into Electric Ladyland in New York and made that record. And I ended up really falling into it. It feels like an album in a very kind of AOR way that is a compliment. Hmm. That is a and good thing. Absolutely. And it really... It's in a category of other 
capital A albums, I would say as well. Best Alternative Album kind of has been a place for a lot of that in terms of uh, Let's run know, down the list. categories in years back. We have Fleet Foxes with Shore, which is a really, really great record. Uh, we have Halsey, who um, typically played in the pop world, um, but decided not to Not with those producers. Not with, uh, not with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. That's an album that both you and I love, Leah. Uh, if I can't have love, I want power. We have Japanese Breakfast with Jubilee, who we mentioned earlier. We have St. Vincent, of course. And then we have Arlo Parks with Collapsed in Sunbeams, which is a really gorgeous minimalist record. It won the Mercury Prize this year. And again, another pretty inspired choice from the Grammys. Arlo is also up for Best New Artist this year. She's almost assuredly going to lose to Olivia Rodrigo, as are the other <laughs> nominees. But it's nice to see her in that category. And it's nice to see St. Vincent among this group of really talented artists that I hate to use the word zeitgeist, but feel kind of zeitgeisty in a world where the Grammys are still nominating, again, no shots, John Batiste with 11 nominations for an album that not as many people spoke about. Gosh, I mean, that's where we've seen, I feel like more than once Beck has been up for best alternative and album of the year. And I think he's even won two albums of the year, right? But you and I, I think both of us, the record of the year for us two years ago or the year before last was Fiona, right? Mm -hmm. And I knew I wasn't going to see her at the top of all the Grammy stuff, but I still hoped, you know, my little heart still hoped. And we knew she was never going to win. So yeah, it does end up feeling like those are where you end up finding the records that you actually listened to and really loved. And I really enjoyed that last Vampire Weekend record. I was really happy to see it, you know, do well there and kind of knew that it wouldn't make the, you know, the bar above that televised bar probably <laughs> of those nine awards that we get to see on camera. It's funny. I actually spoke with Ezra Koenig the year they got nominated um, at one of those Grammy events ahead of the ceremony. And he actually thought that they were maybe going to win that year. So it's kind of sad in retrospect Aww. that they did it. I know. I felt really, I, I try to keep a straight face. I'm like, I feel like that's probably not going to happen. And hey, we, we named that album the number one of the year. Um, EW. No, he is Quincy Jones' son-in-law, so that is not a bad. That is you true. Know? Anyway, Although I guess Quincy's no longer the most nominated, so maybe not. He is not. That is a good point. You need to be Jay Z's son now, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Leah, any last thoughts before we head to our Saint Vincent chat? My last thoughts would be that I have spent the last half hour complaining about the Grammys, and I'm still going to watch the crap out of it. I still enjoy this show, the mess of it, the mistakes of it, and the moments of triumph, which still happen and still kind of thrill me a little bit. So I'm still looking forward to it. I'm right there with you. You know, we did spend a half hour sort of crapping on the Grammys as a cultural institution, <laughs> but it is still something I'm going to watch. Even if I wasn't doing this job, it is still something I pay attention to. You know, we love music and it's something we want to see. And we like watching some of our favorite artists, including St. Vincent's Annie Clark, who we will be hearing from right after the break. We'll be right back. We have Annie Clark of St. Vincent. Welcome to EW's Awardist Podcast. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing very well. So Grammy-dominated Daddy's Home is the record. Obviously, releasing an album is always a bit of a whirlwind, so to speak. Uh, now that you have some time with it being out in the world, you've hit the road, you've played it for fans, you've let folks sit with it. 
Has your perspective on the body of work shifted at all? You know, it's a funny one because I hadn't listened to the record um, start to finish since I had, you know, sequenced it and, you know, sent it to mastering. I was kind of getting masters back. Um, and then obviously went on tour in October with like a full, amazing band and, and played these really um, joyful shows actually all across the States and managed miraculously to not get COVID and to not have anybody in my band or crew get COVID. Um, but I, I listened to it start to finish the other day. And, um, and I was like, oh, no, I'm, I, I love this record. It's, it's very close to my heart. So I, um, I, I don't feel the kind of like guilt and shame that usually <laughs> you kind of feel when you listen back to your own work. I, I love it. You know, it's warm. Do you often listen back to your own work or is that something you try to avoid? I really don't. I only kind of go back when I have a, a, a reason to or every once in a while, just to for um, kind of reference sake, like, wait, what did I do? And it's funny, even learning old songs and, you know, performing them in a new context with new musicians. It's like, oh, why did I make that choice? Huh? Okay, cool. You know, but no, I'm always just looking forward, frankly. This album is steeped in 70s aesthetics and sonics. Um, what were some of your favorite instruments and tones you recorded on this record, um, particularly ones you hadn't used before? Um, well, I played a lot of the choral electric sitar, which I believe the lore is that it was um, inspired by the Beatles, um, you know, Indian Indian fantasy that they kind of Indian trip that they went on. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a, it's built like a guitar, but it has a resonating strings on the body. So it sounds like a sitar, but it's obviously much easier to play because it's shaped like a guitar. Um, so that was a, that was a fun one. Um, kind of unexpected. And then, um, also just the sound of a Wurlitzer. It's just wonderful. It's just a great sound. I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, trying to describe sound is obviously hard, but it just, you know, <laughs> I, you, I narrowly avoided saying the word creamy and, and I just, just, God, no, dear Lord. Um, but it's just like, it's like sinking back into an old beat up leather, vegan leather armchair. You know, it's just like, it just feels good. Everything I was playing was really kind of from that era. I mean, the little roads. Um, even some kind of uh, flutes. There are flutes involved, sparsely, but that was oddly enough a kind of staple of, of music at that time. Mm-hmm. This album touches on a lot of things, you know, fear of parenthood, the kind of grunge and grime of 1970s New York. Also, more broadly, it touched on your father's previous incarceration. And though it has been something you spoke about in interviews throughout the press run, was it weird at all to have your dad be kind of a lot of the main focus in conversations about this record you recorded? Yeah, I think I was a little naive to, I thought that if I kind of said it and I made this neat little comic that kind of explained it and I, that went out to press and I thought, okay, well, if I kind of explain it and talk about it in the promo materials, then that's great. Cause I don't, it means I don't have to kind of talk about it again or talk about it in every interview. And uh, that's not what happened. <laughs> I ended up like, you know, talking about, pops quite a bit, which was just bizarre and frankly funny and ironic and all that. Um, I mean, really, the record is very much about 
me, <laughs> um, certainly my experience and him coming home, but also like I kind of transform into daddy over the course of this album. And a lot of that, a lot of the storytelling, it was, you know, from my life in New York, obviously it wasn't in the early seventies. I'm very young, but it really was, you know, I've been the girl last night's heels on the morning train. You know, I've been the person at the holiday party who's revealing themselves by the things they try to hide. So it, and so really for me is about a personal transformation. You teased a little bit of that on your previous record, Mass Seduction, with New York and the kind of mention of Astor Place. Um, what were some of the hallmarks of that time you spent in New York? Um, what was the vibe like and how did it kind of seep its way into your songwriting? Well, I think I just lived a lot of dirtbag years in New York, you know, and I still live there sometimes, you know, I haven't been able to get rid of my self-identity as a as a New Yorker, because I was there for 10 years. And they were formative years. I mean, they were, you know, everywhere I look in the East Village, which is where I used to live, like, there's a memory on every street, you go like, Oh, I fell in love on that corner. And Oh, I, you know, I was absolutely shattered drunk on that corner and broke up on that corner, whatever it is, I still have a very romantic notion of it. And I was coming up, I was putting out my early records and touring a lot. And then I'd come home and schlep like you know five heavy road cases and guitars at my four-story walk up and you know, it was it was inglorious in a lot of ways but really um very formative it's the sort of fun of new york it is very easy to romanticize while you're living in it and also after you leave it yeah it's a great place you mentioned being back on the road and your shows were part of this kind of first post-vaccine wave of tours what was it like being back in that setting after being away for so long? Wow. Well, I, I mean, I hadn't toured in three years, which for me, I mean, I've kind of grew up being like a road dog. I hate to say it, but I mean, I used to pound the pavement after I put out every record and really like go to places in the States and stuff that I think a lot of people wouldn't hit because they're not as major markets or whatever. But I was like, no, get me to Omaha, you know? So not being on tour for three years was crazy for me. But the shows back, I, it's it's a funny thing because they were, you know, booked and planned before the Delta variant hit. <laughs> and then, you know, it kind of comes time in early September to do it. And of course, there's rehearsals and production rehearsals and all that to prepare for the tour. And we had obviously very strict COVID protocols for that. And it's a miracle we didn't get sick practicing. And then it's a miracle we didn't get sick, tra you know, getting on airplanes and traveling across the country and being in buses with recycled air and 12 of us on there or whatever. Like it's a miracle that we didn't get sick, but we didn't. And the vibe from the people was just ecstatic, you know, and it was joyful and it was very open hearted in a way that frankly, I really needed. The band is absolutely an incredible group of musicians. I mean, really, really unbelievable talent. And so we just played music. You know, there weren't tracks. There wasn't that much in the way of production, even. It was, I wanted to make sure that anything that we did on stage was practical. And I don't mean, I mean, practical in the sense of props and movement, you know, no, no screens, no like digital this, just like, 
okay, there's a turntable and it moves. There's flashing lights. Great. We're just putting on a show for people. And it was just so great. I mean, I, I loved it and I, I had the best time and I, I missed it so much. And I don't mean to be self-aggrandizing when I say this, but I, I just mean this generally. We really needed it. We re- people really needed it. There was something magical about being back in a room full of people and listening to live music again. There's nothing like it. There's, there's not an analog. You can't, there's no um, clubhouse get together that will do it <laughs> justice. <laughs> You've been ending, or you were ending these shows uh, with The Melting of the Sun, which is one of the highlights of Daddy's Home. What was it about that track that made it sort of an ideal show closer? Well, for me, it was faceted. A lot of times we go from live in the dream into melting of the sun, which is how it is on the album. And melting of the sun is this kind of, it ends on a lighthearted, I think, hopeful note or lighthearted and hopeful for me, which, you know, it's like, you know, the world's spinning around, you know, now to time, but you can't get, you can't give in now when you're down, down and out. And we would, me and the singers would spin out of sight as the band kept playing and then the band would stop and we were still singing and then the audience would sing the the final choruses together and it was just like a great punctuation mark it was a nice way to to kind of come down um because you you know you don't want to edge people like to death like <laughs> like you gotta you know there's a place for that in this in the set but like you gotta bring them down and and kind of send them off on their way with like um, a full heart and like joy. <laughs> Edging to death at a concert isn't the worst way to go. Like, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's talk a bit more about the Grammys. While you are officially nominated for one category, best alternative album, you technically the day of the nominations were in line for two. Had you heard about getting an album of the year credit for being noted as a co-writer on Olivia Rodrigo's album? You know, it didn't occur to me at all until I think a week later and I was chatting with my friend Jack Antonoff and I was like, Oh wait, Jack, are we going to be, does that mean we, and we were like, we don't know. Olivia's great. I'm so happy for her success. And like, I think we've been taken out of the co-writing part of it because it's an interpolation or whatever. It's the, it's Grammy rules. And that's totally cool. I'll be happy to see Olivia succeed. Indeed. Yeah, that album was terrific. And yeah, I think there were some late Grammy rule shuffling where some folks ended up losing the co-writing credit after the fact. Yeah, it didn't even occur to me. So it wasn't wasn't dramatic. Mm -hmm. A lot of artists are being pretty overly careful these days about crediting writers, even in cases where songs that don't necessarily sound alike. Now, you've won two Grammys before, Best Rock Song for Mass Seduction and best alternative album for your self-titled St. Vincent. And of course, there's always been some kind of, I think, inherent tension between art and mass recognition like the Grammys. (laughs) You know, you've seen it most, you know, pretty recently with artists pulling away from Grammy nominations. Um, But I'm curious for you, what does recognition from the Recording Academy mean to you now? Is it any different from what it did when you were first nominated in 2015? I mean, I think it's really cool. It's because I think what maybe the public doesn't necessarily know about the Grammys is that it, it's not a popular vote. They have awards for that. You know, they have American Music Awards and things like that that are that are based on um, the public voting in and 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 those votes being tallied and 
I don't have to explain how voting works. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, but the Grammys, it's like, uh, there's a lot of people who work in music who are not the performers, who are not the people you see on the stage. It's um, engineers, it's producers, it's songwriters, um, it's straight up musicians, it's arrangers, composers, all this stuff. So I think, I think it's nice to be recognized by your peers who, who know a thing or two about the, the craft of it and are all, you know, in doing the same um, hustle every day to, to the, for them to be like, yeah, because it is in some ways a more, um, I wouldn't say it's a more informed, it is a more informed audience on, on a certain level because they are in do the work that, that you do and, and kind of understand it more than someone who does not. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of the same along those same lines of the Screen Actors Guild awarding actors and, you know, actors being very thankful for being awarded by their peers versus another body, a uh, voting body, whether it be the general public or another critic circle or something along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's I mean, no no shade on any kind of award. It's nice to be recognized. Um but yeah, of course, I mean, of course, if you zoom out, you know, the idea of like art contest is there's an asterisk next to that <laughs> that we could unpack. But, you know, it's a lot of fun. Well, speaking of your performance with Dua Lipa at the Grammys in 2019 was, I think, one of the most talked about of the evening. Um, can we expect you to be hitting the stage at all this year? Um, again, I, I don't know. <laughs> i hope so it was so fun and do as a gem so that was i'd love to she really is before i let you go i wanted to ask a bit about the idols remix i was curious um how that came about and yeah just your thoughts on idols as a group they're kind of having a moment right now i fucking love idols sometimes you just want music to just absolutely pummel you and they do and they've you know they've built a thing they built a show. They built an experience that's just very visceral and very real. The other month I got to see them in LA and was just in the mosh pit, just kind of throwing down. <laughs> All right, Annie, before I let you go, any final thoughts about this year's Grammys? I think it'll be a lot of fun. You know, it's fun. You get to see your friends. You get to dress up. You get to see people perform and collaborations on stage that you never would have expected it's a good time that's all we can ask for these days right yeah that's fun annie clark saint vincent thank you very much for taking the time thank you so much and that's it for this grammys episode of the awardist if you liked what you heard subscribe rate the podcast and leave us an award-winning review on apple podcasts to keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Alex J. Suskind and at Leah Blatz. We'll see you next time. This episode of the Awardist Podcast is hosted by Alex Suskind and Leah Greenblatt, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, executive produced by Shana Crockmall, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.